take a Bible out, find Psalm 90. That's a passage that we're going to read through here in just a moment. There's notes in the bulletin. You can track along with some of the things that we're going to talk about as we think about the eternity of God. We're going to go through a lot of different scriptures. A lot of them I'm going to put on the screen. Psalm 90 will not be on the screen, so you're going to want to be able to read that out of the scriptures for yourself. This short series is an extension of something we did at the beginning of 2020. We started last year thinking about the character of God. We talked about these attributes, God's holiness, his self-existence, his sovereignty, his goodness, his faithfulness, his power, his patience, his wrath, and his love. This year, we're spending just a month thinking about who God is and what he's like, and these are the things that we're talking about. We've talked about his omniscience and his omnipresence, this morning his eternity, and next week his wisdom. I want to start with a quote from a Dutch theologian named Louis Burkhoff. Burkhoff was born in the Netherlands in 1873. When he was about five, his family moved to Michigan. He was a seminary professor. He was a pastor. He was a prolific author. And he says this about the eternity of God. He says, our existence is marked off by days and weeks and months and years, not so the existence of God. Our life is divided into a past, present, and future, but there is no such division in the life of God. He is the eternal I am. So we're thinking this morning about this biblical truth that God is eternal. We'll start with some some basic definitions. The eternity of God means that God has no beginning and will have no end. He has no beginning and he will have no end. I'll put some verses on the screen from the revelation of John, the apocalypse of John. Just look how God reveals himself in this book. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, Revelation 1.4. A few verses later, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 21.6, the end of the book, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He is the Alpha He's the Omega. To reference back to the Burkhoff quote, it's why the Lord revealed himself to Moses, Exodus 3.14, as I am who I am. We'll add to this definition. The eternity of God means that God does not experience a succession of moments. This is part of God's character, part of his nature, one of his attributes that is really hard for us to take in, this idea that God does not experience a succession of moments. He relates to us in time, but he exists outside of time. This is hard for us to take in because this is so different than our experience as human beings. All of us had a beginning, and that beginning happened in a moment. Conception happens at a moment. There is not a living being, and then there is a living being. Birth and all that goes with birth is a bit of a process, but it culminates in a moment. And on your birth certificate, they say, this is the moment that you were born. This is the time that you were born. 
we experience life as a beginning moment and then a succession of moments. God doesn't experience time in this way. We can look back on our lives and think about what happened in the past. We can try to look into the future and guess about what's going to happen next, although it's just a guess. We have a, a past and a present and a future God, the creator of time, who exists outside of time and above time, doesn't experience time the way that we do. We like to dream about flux capacitors if you're of a certain generation. And you say, man, I just wish I could set the date and go back or set the date and go forward. If you're younger, you have no idea what a flux capacitor is, you might know what PIM particles are. You say, if I only had a few PIM particles, then I'd be able to travel one place or another or go back or go forward, but that's not real life. That's science fiction. We exist in a moment and then in a succession of moments. It's not how God exists. Look what Isaiah says in Isaiah 57. He describes God as the living one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That root idea of holiness is that God is different than us. He is set apart from us. And one of the ways in which he's different than us and set apart from us is that while we can only live in the moment, the Lord God inhabits eternity. No beginning, no end, and in the ultimate sense, not even a succession of moments like we experience. One more piece of the definition here, one more piece of the puzzle. The eternity of God is part of his infinitude. And we referenced this last week. As finite creatures, we have limits. Particularly, we are limited by space and time. We get to be in one place at one time. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, one of our daughters, our oldest daughter, Emma, has played out-of-town basketball games. And either I've gone to the game or Brooke's gone to the game. And we've sent pictures and we've sent videos and we've sent text updates. And there's some illusion that you're actually there when you're not there. But really, we all know only one of us was there. You can be in one place at one time. It's because we're limited by space and time. God in his infinitude is not limited by space. And we talked about last week his omnipresence. He's also not limited by time the way that we are, which is his eternality or his eternity. He is not limited like we are. This is one of the hardest truths to really take in. You're thinking about who God is and what he's like and you're trying to understand God. You know how sometimes from your childhood you have very vivid, distinct memories. You forget a lot of things from your childhood. I have a very vivid, distinct memory. I tried to figure out this week. I'm guessing I was five or six. And I'm guessing that something happened at church. Something was talked about at church with respect to God being eternal. And I remember going home, laying in my bed at night, lights off, bedtime, not able to go to sleep because I was trying to think in my five- or six-year-old brain, how is it possible that God did not have a birthday? How is that possible? And I just remember running that through my head all sorts of different five-year-old, six-year-old ways thinking, well, maybe, no. Well, maybe, no. Well, what about, no. All these years later, I don't know that I have a great explanation that just makes this easy for you to understand. 
other than to say what the Bible says, that God had no beginning, he will have no end. He dwells in eternity, not just an individual moment or a succession of moments. And this is part of his holiness and his infinitude, that he is not bound by space and time the way that we are. Now, here's the, the real truth. When you start to think about some of these attributes of God, there are questions that pop into your mind. And some of them are questions worth acknowledging and worth wrestling with. Two questions I want us to think about this morning. Question one, what was God doing before he created the world? Don't act like you've never wondered what he was doing before he created the world. You have thought that if you are a thinking person. Secondly, how does God's eternity relate to the incarnation? Two, two questions. Question one, what was God doing before he created the world? One of the greatest theologians in all of church history is a man named Augustine. Sometimes people say it Augustine, but if you're an educated person, you say Augustine, so you don't want to sound like a redneck. So Augustine of Hippo, he lived in North Africa. Brilliant, brilliant theologian, recognized in the, in the Catholic church and Protestant churches. People look at him and say, this guy was absolutely brilliant. There's a legend about Augustine. We don't know that this really happened, but there's a legend about Augustine that one day while he was teaching, a student asked him, Augustine, what was God doing before he created the world? And Augustine thought for a moment, and according to legend, his response was creating hell for people who ask too many questions. I don't know if he said that or not. It's a pretty good answer. When your kids pop off and ask you something that you don't know, you might want to just file that one away. might come in handy at some point. Here's what we do know. Later in life, or at one point in his life, he did give a serious answer to this question. It may not be the answer that satisfies you or that you want, but here's what he said. What was God doing before he created the world? He says the question itself is invalid. It's not, a, it's not a legitimate question to ask because the question includes an idea that doesn't apply to God. It includes the word before. Before is a time word. And when we talk about God's eternality, his eternity, the fact that he's eternal, he had no beginning, he has no end, he doesn't experience a succession of moments, he's not bound by space or time in his infinitude, Time as a category doesn't apply to God the way that it applies to us. He is the creator of time. And so asking this question, what was God doing before he created the world, is kind of like when I was in college and I had a professor stand up in front of the class, an English professor, who thought he was very smart and said, is it possible for God to make a mountain so big that even he can't move it? Well, he's got you either way. If you say no, well, then he's not all-powerful. If you say yes, he's not all-powerful. The question itself is flawed. It, it has a contradiction within itself, and it's not a legitimate question to even ask of God. It's a silly question. It's a foolish question. And Augustine's answer, in all honesty, is that the question itself, what was God doing before he created the world is a flawed question because it assumes that God is limited somehow by time, which he's not. You can look up this reference I've given you in the book of Job. It's one of the true things that Elihu says to Job. He says to Job, God is great. We don't know him fully. We don't know him fully. 
and he says the number of his years is unsearchable. You can't put a number on it. Right? You could type it into Google, you hit search, and you come back zero answers. This is not a question that really applies to God. So that may not be the answer that you were wanting or looking for that satisfies your five-year-old inquisitive mind, but I think it's the right answer. Question two, this one's tough. How does God's eternity relate to the incarnation? We have to tread very carefully here. We think about the incarnation of God the Son and the person of Jesus of Nazareth because if you're not careful, you end up a heretic. How does God's eternity relate to the incarnation? Let me give you a couple of verses from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. When you keep reading in the Gospel of John, it's abundantly clear that the Word is the second member of the Trinity. It's God the Son who became incarnate in Jesus. We read about that in John 1.14. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. On the one hand, John tells us that God the Son existed from the beginning. He always existed. He's talking about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has always existed, who is not bound or limited by time the way that we are. But then he says something remarkable that we just kind of read over. We don't think about how this all fits with the eternality or the eternity of God. And he says the word, the eternal word became flesh. And it happened in a place and it happened in a time. It happened in a moment. He is from the beginning, the one who was and is and is to come. And he's the one who roughly 2,000 years ago entered space and time and God became man without ceasing to be God. We said a lot of stuff right there and your brain is just spinning and thinking, how can I take all of that in? There's a lot that the Bible says about this and we just try to hold it all together. We try not to oversimplify it so that it makes sense to our small, tiny, puny brains and we say, Lord, if this is what you've revealed about yourself, we believe it and we accept it even if we can't get our theological arms all the way around it. Let me give you a few verses just to help you think through this. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I had no beginning. I am the great I am who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3. I had no beginning and I will have no end, no birthday. Then we read in Luke 2, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. There, a place, time, a moment, she gave birth. It's the miracle of the incarnation. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right, this is a great mystery involved in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And what we just try to all hold together is this idea that God the Son, the Word, existed from the beginning, had no beginning, He will have no end. He took on human flesh, 
He became a man without ceasing to be God in a place, in a moment, at a particular time in history, and he will forever be who he is. How does God's eternity relate to the incarnation? This is challenging stuff. Here's the big picture. We're going to look at Psalm 90. From eternity past to eternity future, God is God. From eternity past to eternity future, God is God. Take your copy of the scriptures and let's just read Psalm 90. This is a prayer of Moses, a psalm written by Moses. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We could spend weeks studying this psalm, talking about all sorts of different things that Moses is teaching us about God. I just want to walk through this passage with you and ask you to think about God's eternal nature, his eternal nature. Verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. No beginning, no end. Verse 3, we're different. We should say God is different because we return to dust. We're not eternal. We are not from everlasting to everlasting. We're mortal, not eternal. Verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, he says, a thousand years are no different to you than a watch of the night. It's no different than just a passing of a day. This is not a tight mathematical formula that you ought to try to apply to God's experience of time. This is just a way of speaking, a a hyperbolic way of speaking, of saying, look, one watch of the night, a few hours, a thousand years, what's the difference if you're eternal? 
There's a great difference if you're mortal, but if you're eternal, there's no difference. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, it reminds you of the book of James where James says, your life is a vapor. Here Moses says, our life passes like a sigh. (sighs) Gone. Verse 10, maybe we live 70 years, maybe we live 80 years. With all of our scientific advances, maybe we live 90 or 100 years. What is that in comparison to eternity? Verse 12, Moses says we ought to recognize our finiteness. We ought to number our days. God's days can't be numbered. He's from everlasting to everlasting. We're not. We ought to number our days. doesn't mean that you need to keep a tally mark system somewhere. It just means you ought to be mindful of the fact that you are not like God. Your life is not like God's. Verse 13 to 17, the end of this psalm, I think Moses is encouraging us to be satisfied in the Lord. Not the things of this earth, not the place that you might live or how much money you might have or the things that you might accumulate, but to find your satisfaction in the Lord who has no beginning, who has no end, who is eternal. You read through Psalm 90, you come away saying, look, if this is true about who God is, it ought to change the way that I talk to him, the way that I pray to him. As we close, I just want you to think about the fact that if this is true about God, it ought to change the way that we live. And I want to make a few suggestions to you as we close. How should we live in light of God's eternity? Number one, we should feel awe and we should worship. When you think about who God is in his eternality, in his eternity, you ought to feel awe and you ought to worship. Look what we read in Jeremiah 10.10. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. If the earth itself quakes at the presence of the everlasting, the eternal king, you and I ought to quake. We ought to feel awe. We ought to tremble when we think about who God is and what he's like. And we ought to worship. We read Romans 16. I would encourage you to look at uh, the other references I gave you. Ephesians 3. There's a reference in 1 Timothy. All these references are doxologies. They're words of praise and worship. And all of them reference or mention the fact that God is eternal. Right? When the authors of the New Testament thought about God in his eternity, in his eternality, they were moved to worship. We ought to feel awe and we ought to worship. Secondly, we should rest in God's unchanging character. His unchanging character. Look what we read in Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure Their offspring shall be established before you. Why do we have hope that we might dwell secure and have a future? 
It's not because of who we are or what we might accomplish. It's because God never changes. His years have no end. We can find rest in his unchanging eternal character. How many of you have ever been to a high school reunion, one of your high school reunions? I've never gone to one of mine. Last year would have been my 20th high school reunion for Emerald High. I don't think they ended up doing anything because of COVID. I wouldn't have gone anyways. I have some friends who have gone to a few of these, and uh, I've talked to them, and they've had interesting things to say, and sometimes they say things like, you know, it's amazing how so-and-so has changed. Well, 15 years, 20 years, people change. Uh, Not too long ago, my grandparents went to their 50th class reunion, Dumas High School, and I remember talking to them after they went to their 50th reunion, and I said, hey, how was it? And they said, eh, it's just a bunch of old people. (laughs) Everything on this earth wears out like an old garment. The Lord's years have no end. And the psalmist makes the connection in Psalm 102, this idea that because God's years will have no end, because you will never approach him at a reunion down the road and say, ah, you look old. What happened? You changed. That's never going to happen. Because God will never change because his years have no end, we can dwell secure. We can rest in his unchanging character. Thirdly, we should realize that earthly pleasures will never be able to satisfy our hearts. This is the end of what we read in Psalm 90, that the Lord might satisfy us in him. This is the end of what you read in Psalm 73. These are some of, I think, the most beautiful words in Scripture. Psalm 73, written by Asaph. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. There is no one in heaven that compares to God. Not your grandma. Not your long-lost buddy who died too young. There is no one in heaven who will satisfy you other than the Lord. And, Asaph reminds us, there is nothing on this earth that compares to the Lord. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Find your satisfaction in the Lord, not in the things that wear out like a garment, not in the things of this world. The New Testament says this world is passing away with all of its pleasures and all of its desires. Don't look for satisfaction here. You will never find it. Find your satisfaction in the Lord. Lastly, I think we ought to prepare ourselves for eternity. This is one of the interesting things that the Bible says, that although we had a beginning We had an initial moment, and now we experience a succession of moments. The Bible also describes that there is something else for us after this life, this world. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the the preacher or the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in the heart of men and women. He's saying there's something in all people deep down instinctively we know this isn't all that there is. We might try to reject that. 
understanding. We might try to push back against that truth, but deep down we know, surely, this isn't all that there is. We, we have that longing because God has set eternity in our hearts. I like this quote from Matthew Barrett. He's written a book about the character of God. The book's called None Greater. And he says, God's eternal nature is both the worst news in the world and the best news in the world. At the same time, it's the worst and the best news. Depends on your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever, the non-Christian, this is bad news. It's bad news. Because what it means for the unbeliever is that you are facing an eternity of God's wrath and his anger. And we've read throughout the verses we've looked at this morning that his character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. For the believer, this is good news. There's hope. There's hope that if you die, not just in your sins, but you die trusting in Christ, you look forward to an eternity with the Lord God in a new heavens, in a new earth. It's good news, and it's good news that can be true for you because of the truth we read in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life.